You're listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to A Book With Legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead. I'm the president and a portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we are readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models in analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. I'm glad everyone's joined us for this episode of the podcast. Uh, we're going to be going off like a new show format uh, for the podcast today. We're calling this an in the beginning episode. We will use a book as our framework for learning about the history of a company. Instead of the author joining us, we will have a founder or, or an early leader join us to talk about that author's work and the company's history in the beginning. In today's episode, we're going to talk about Karen Southwick's book, High Noon, that was published in 1999. High Noon does a wonderful job of telling the story of Sun Microsystems from its infancy to growing pains to its conflicts with Microsoft. I think this is an important story to think about, especially for millennials, because this was a company that built the internet and the networks that we take for granted today. Their core principles are everywhere in the building blocks of the systems we use. Joining me to discuss this story, I, I figured there was no one better to talk and discuss Karen's work with than the co-founder and former chief executive officer and chairman, Scott McNeely. Scott, thanks for joining us today. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So just to give uh, all the listeners some context, Scott founded the business with Vinod Kosla, Andy Bechtelsheim, and Bill Joy in 1982. He became CEO in 1984 and held that title until 2006. He was chairman until Sun Microsystems sailed to Oracle in 2010. I know we're going to have a lot of fun in our discussion with him as we look at Karen's book, High Noon, and talk about Sun Microsystems in the beginning. So just to start us out, to kind of give some context to the origins, um, Scott, Vinod originally started a company, I, th I think it was called Daisy Systems, but it was a CAD company. And what she said in the book is he recognized that it was foolish because back then engineers were sharing one computer. So you'd have multiple engineers trying to work off one computer um, in kind of a mini computer or a larger computer at that time. He saw the power of the workstation and the ability to plug into the ethernet that he had seen at Stanford. How important were those early concepts of, you know, workstation for one person um, to the founding of Sun? So, yeah, Sun basically leveraged a whole bunch of new technologies that were coming out at the time. Uh, and the CAD workstation business was, was uh, one of the early adopters because uh, engineers, especially uh, in the CAD world, the designers, uh, they're expensive, and if you can leverage their work, and they hated getting on a multi-user mini-computer at 4 in the morning, and it still ran slow. So uh, a big breakthrough was the large microprocessor, the VLSI microprocessor. And you, you had Motorola and eventually Intel and other uh, companies building very powerful microprocessors. And then there was uh, graphics chips that came along, and... Uh, High-resolution bitmap displays became a, uh, a new technology. Cheap DRAM became, a, uh, uh, as we started to 
see the early days of Moore's Law uh, keep keep going. I and mean, it just kept surprising everybody that uh, things would just get faster and memory would get cheaper. So you put all of those together, uh, and then networking happened. And in 1982, I think we were the first company at Sun to put TCP IP on every computer we ever shipped. Uh, that was kind of weird. And there was... You know, DECnet out there, Apollo had their domain environment, uh, IBM had their SNA environment, Microsoft had one. I can't even remember um, what their networking scheme was, but we went with the free and open source TCP IP architecture. You put all of those ideas together and then throw in open source, in other words, zero barriers to entry and nearly zero barriers to exit, as opposed to going proprietary, uh, we, had, we had quite an interesting array of technologies that Andy Bechtelsheim pulled together and Bill Joy pulled together on the software side to go make all. I mean, we had uh, virtual memory built into our computer in the first couple of years, and virtual memory was just a brand new concept to uh, make your computer seem even bigger than the DRAM that you had. And uh, all of those things just basically uh, were a confluence uh, sort of like Uber took a lot of new things and just changed cabs. We took a lot of things and, and uh, changed the way designers operated. So you just mentioned, Scott, uh, you talked about TCIP and open source. Um, one of these early principles was, you know, to your point, open systems and networks, the ability of sharing. We take this na- you know, grant for granted now in this age of the Internet we're in. But how outside the box was that concept back in 1982? It was, it was very outside the box. And... Uh, we we used to draw a picture called a f- and showed a a box in the schematic called a file server, and that was a brand new concept. Nobody know or understood what a file server was all about. Uh, I can't remember who invented it. Maybe Bill Joy did, but came in with the network file system, so that the file system extended beyond your memory and disk drive out over the network to a distributed file system, if you will, out over the uh, over the network. It was really a weird idea that you could actually have a very large file system that wasn't all running locally on your physical uh, piece of equipment or server. I remember we, we brought this into the staff meeting and Bill Joyce said, we're going to have to open source this. And Vinod and I looked at it and said, yeah, that makes sense. And the president that we had hired in from Dex said, no, you can't do that. That's our corporate jewels. We're going to keep it only us. And Bill Joyce said, that's sort of like having a telephone that has proprietary interfaces that doesn't talk to any other phones. You have to open source it so that the file system can talk to other file systems. He just didn't get it. Didn't. I mean, it seemed obvious to us that if you're going to create a standard, you have to share it. Uh, and, and, but it was, it was weird because in that day and age, your source code was the corporate jewels. It was, it was your IP. It was your value store. And, you know, that's obviously a, a, an outdated model of thinking uh, in today. Correct. And we'll come back to that because I think that's a great point you're touching on there. So Sun was seeded with $247,000 by Bob Sackman and Doug Broyles. Um, Southwick writes that the deal was done on a simple mission statement and trust. So how far away are we from these days of what we used to call venture capital versus what we see in what we call now VC markets? Well, 
we were we were sort of old fashioned. I had gone to business school, and they taught you to make profits, and and uh, uh, that money making money would would make you successful. So mm-hmm. we incorporated February twenty fourth, nineteen eighty two, and in May, our our uh, income statement for May showed a profit, and our first fiscal year we did. I think about, I may have some of these numbers wrong, like $8.9 million in revenue July 1st through the next year. And then we did, oh, uh, shoot, uh, 40, $39 million the next year. We did $115 million the year after that. We did about 220 the year after that, 500 the year after that, and a billion dollars the next year. Uh, making money all along the way. Uh, very sure. different than the Amazon model or the, uh, you know, unicorn model where the goal is to get to a billion dollar valuation without ever having made a penny. So it's it's just different. But, you know, the the tipping mechanism is so well understood and the market is now so big because everybody's market is global now because the, the IP network goes everywhere. Sure. So um, it's uh, it, it's just a different era. But that was sort of the old fashioned era where you actually made money. <laughs> um, and, and I think Karen writes in her in her book that uh, you guys had set out a plan to break even on a cash flow basis in the first year. And as you mentioned, you did. Well, um, I wouldn't say we were cash flow break even. We were gap profitable, but we were, you know, we we're a, an equipment company. So we were sure. we were using capital for spare parts and factories and uh, inventory and all the rest of it. So it wasn't cash flow positive. Gotcha. So, so that you pointed out, that was just the, that was the ideology back then. W- was that also what the venture capital investors that backed you guys expected? And was, were they expecting to start to see profit early on? Well, yeah, that, that was sort of the, the expectation who could be profitable. It wasn't about ARR and, uh, you know, uh, churn and all of the other new words that they use in these non-physical, you know, media and uh, data-driven kinds of startups that you see today that are, 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 you know, venture capitalists don't even like to do hardware anymore, but you need hardware. So we, our, our, our metrics were to go make money. And we figured we had to do that because it was four 27 year olds who were starting the company. And uh, I had three years business experience and the other f- three founders combined. And there had only been one or two really young startup. I mean, Steve Jobs really broke ground for a lot of us in 1982. Microsoft hadn't, you know, really hit hit the big time. Dell was just starting to come up. But we were all kind of the cla- the first class of, of young venture startups that really, uh, you know, the, the, the ceiling was broken. The glass ceiling was broken from an age perspective by Steve Jobs. So you were at Onyx Systems before joining Sun. Uh, what were you doing at Onyx? Well, I, I, I came out of, it's sort of a little longer story. The first two years out of college, out of Harvard, I knew nothing other than antitrust law. And I worked in uh, the UAW uh, factories for uh, the plastics division of Rockwell Automotive. And I did a whole bunch of jobs for a couple of years, went back to business school. I loved the factory. I loved going out and having dinner and, and beers and going go-kart racing at midnight with all of the folks on the factory floor and getting up and working two shifts a day. And I just mm-hmm. loved the whole factory environment. I did a little bit of sales uh, at Rockwell. And when I got out of business school, I wanted to go work in the factory. Nobody would put a Stanford MBA 
in the factory. They just <laughs> thought that was wasting them. And eventually FMC Corporation said, well, we'll put you in the, in the factory in a couple of years, but you got to do corporate strategy, corporate manufacturing strategy first. So I was working out of Chicago, and I ended up getting put on the tank plant, out at uh, FMC tank plant um, out in uh, San Jose, and where they built the uh, M2, M3, Bradley fighting vehicle kinds of stuff, armored personnel carriers, that sort of stuff. And I fell in love with a gal on the team, uh, the strategy team, who lived out in San Jose. I told my boss, move me out there or I'm out of here. I was there for about two months, and, and my old uh, college professor, Bill Reducio, who eventually ended up being my CXO in just about every job that I had, uh, mm-hmm. and eventually was CTO at AOL, super bright, PhD in economics, my thesis advisor. He was buying computers from Onyx Systems, and he couldn't get enough of them. They're, they couldn't get them out of the factory fast enough. And he said, hey, I know a good manufacturing guy who's building tanks. Why don't you interview him? I got the job, and I did that for 10 months before Vinod said, let's go start Sun. So you grew up in the Midwest, um, and you're kind of touching at some of your roots. Um, you grew up in both Indiana and Michigan, uh, Bloomfield Hills to be exact. Um, Scott, just so you know, I've been to the Merrill Lynch office there in Bloomfield Hills many times um, for work. Uh, how important were those Midwest, Midwest roots, and what did they bring to the table, to your point, when you landed in Silicon Valley? Oh, I don't know. It's, it's like, it was like, I don't know, leaving Oz and going to Kansas, coming to the Silicon <laughs> Valley. Uh, it, it's not the, I, I was born in Indiana, moved to Illinois, Kansas, Ohio, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin. I, I lived all over the Midwest. And, you know, growing up, we had a bicycle and we took off and we had to be back by dinner. Uh, we, there were no fences. We didn't lock our doors. Uh, we, uh, we knew everybody on the block. They all knew who we were. You didn't knock. You just went in the door and went into your, your, your buddy's refrigerator. You, you, you sat and had dinner with them. You just called home and said, I'm not coming home for dinner. And, Sure. We we played, we made get made up games. We we rode all over the place. It was just, uh, I had uh, four grades in one classroom at one uh, four room schoolhouse that I went to school with, uh, and wow. it, it it's just it was a better era. It was just a better era. I I, I feel badly that my boys. Uh, were so supervised and so, you know, helicoptered, uh, but by necessity, because you didn't, there was nowhere for them to go on a bike. There was, you know, there were fences everywhere. Everything's locked up. And it wasn't, it, it was safe back in the old days. It was, sure. we, we all took care of each other. It was just a very wonderful environment. It taught me nothing about <laughs> California. So um, it was just learning something new. Your dad was in the car business with American Motors. Um, as I was reading her story and thinking about your life, um, obviously Steve Ballmer's father was also an auto uh, family. Um, I know there are people like Keith Kroc who was raised near the car business. Is there something to this, you know, this commonality between people that were raised in the car business and who ended up having a lot of success in Silicon Valley? Have you ever attributed or ascribed anything to that? Well, uh the auto industry, my dad was vice chairman at American Motors, and uh, that was when they had the big four. When I was a kid, the highest per capita income geography or a region in America was Detroit. 
the Detroit metropolitan area had the highest per capita income when I was growing up there. I noticed, uh, I read, a, I don't know how long ago it was, uh, a few years back, I saw the same uh, statement, and you, you might be a little surprised to think who the new highest per capita uh, income area was. It was Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and that sort of shows what has happened and the deterioration of our economic prowess, if you will. But the Silicon Valley uh, has a lot of Midwesterners. Bill Joy was from the Midwest. Uh, So, yeah, I don't know what it was, but we were all used to playing and seeing big games, big scale, uh, going international uh, and building things. I, I loved it because, you know, having started in the auto industry doing plastics, products in at Rockwell. I, I liked putting stuff in a box and shipping it at a profit. Uh, and I didn't want to be a lawyer, you know, dividing up the pie and taking a piece for myself. I didn't want to be a broker in the banking world and take right. some money and send it off to somewhere else and take a, a commission for myself. That just didn't seem like real work to me. And I loved to be able to, I loved the chip business. I loved the, the components business. I loved the computer business. And software was was great, but uh, it, I, I just I like to be able to tape up a box and ship it. So Bill Joy came in as uh, the Unix expert. Um, Southwick mentions that the Berkeley Unix had a quick shutdown process. This was an enhancement, obviously, for the workstation user. Can you explain to our audience, kind of briefly, what Unix was for for an operating system? Uh, well, Unix did multi-user, multi user, multi tasking, uh, virtual memory. Uh, you could put TCP IP on it. You had access to the source code. The, the Berkeley Unix source code was all open, so you could go modify, enhance, and, and uh, take advantage of it from that perspective. Uh, I, I used to th- uh, think that the best feature we had with Sun OS, which was built on Berkeley Unix, was that it had a uh, did not need a quick shutdown. In fact, it didn't shut down very often. People used to brag about running their Sunbox for years without ever having to reboot it. And that was really one of the key features that made our, our product so valuable. But uh, the way I likened it was, you know, it was mankind versus Microsoft. So, you know, the Microsoft uh, DOS architecture moved at the speed of Seattle. Uh, Unix moved at the speed of the planet, uh, all sure. helping. Mankind was all helping to make it better. So that was really the advantage we have. And if you notice now, most of the really uh, important uh, products that are being built in software are being built by an open source community. So Sun was running lean and mean at that time. Uh, she, she notes in her book, employees worked long hours. You had fewer resources. Uh, I think she talked about uh, Vinod. He, he said, uh, well, how many engineers does HP have? And they said 300. And he said, great, I only need 150 uh, to kind of typify that. Um, your your competitors' employees had longer careers, they had families, and they had comp- country club memberships to look after. Um, you had a lot less. How, how big an, of an advantage and driver was was that people advantage in the early Sundays? Uh, you know, Andy and Bill and Vinod were all very, very bright engineers, and I think they, they hired other very bright engineers. I remember when we were looking for uh, somebody technically and people brought up different names and uh, somebody said well how about James Gosling and Bill Joy goes oh he's the he's the greatest programmer 
on the planet, and I thought Bill was. <laughs> he goes, here's Bill who thinks this guy is. I said, well, let's hire him. And he goes, no, no, he's, he's, he's at Carnegie Mellon. He's happy. He's making money there, blah, blah, blah. I said, Bill, call him. Call him now. And uh, so Bill said, all right, I'll call him. But he's not going to come work for us. I said, Bill, call him and invite him out here. So we got him out here, and we all, you know, worked hard to get him excited about what we were doing, and we got him on board. And lo and behold, you know, he ended up inventing Java. So, you know, it was, it was just the really bright people could attract other really bright people. At some point, we kind of grew too fast, and we had a little bit of a bozo invasion. Uh, and you really, you know, the, the message I would give everybody is, all companies, the number one IP, unless you happen to be, I guess, in the oil business or something. But even then, I think having the right people on board is just absolutely your critical asset. And uh, the, the uh, a, a B person will hire C people, and A person will hire A people. And so you really got to be careful not to compromise. Uh, if you got to compromise, use subcontractors. Yeah. Um, so you get your, your first product to come to market is the Sun One, and she talks about that more as a prototype workstation uh, compared to the Sun Two, um, as where the Sun Two was really your meat and potatoes product. Um, she mentions the Comdex trade show in '83. I I wanted to bring it up because d does that do you recollect that trade show in '83 at all by chance? I don't remember what I had for breakfast. Okay, because she she talked about you guys needed nine Sun Twos to work. And, but there was an issue with the monitors uh, uh, pretty much shutting down. And so you shipped 20. So I, I thought I'd bring it up if you, if you remembered it. If not, it, it, it's... Well, it, I, I do remember the monitor issue. And it was uh, right after I took over. I took over two years to the day after uh, we started. Uh, Vinod, was, Vinod and uh, the president we had hired from DEC were kind of relieved of their duties. And they asked me to take over until we could find a real CEO. And I went out back and you know, looked at the machines and about every third one had a red hat on it, meaning it was broken and not working. And we would ship these high resolution monitors to the customer during shipping. Phosphor would break off the screen, the, the front of the screen and reach the high voltage neck. And uh, the it would arc and would zap a MOSFET uh, mic, uh, uh, component on the back, I remember all the words. I don't know what everything did, but it would the the monitor within five minutes of turning it on would go off like a flashbulb and just go dead on about half of the computers we we would ship. We couldn't stop shipping, or we would have not gotten revenue. So our solution, while we fi came up with a fix, was to ship uh, a whole pile of extra monitors to the local service. Uh, shop or the sh service depot where where uh, we were shipping the computers and then as soon as the customer would call up and say hey I just got my computer and I turned it on and we would say we'll be right there and we'd show up with with new monitors plug them in and and uh, get them up and running and we turned lemons into lemonade they thought man IBM doesn't have this kind of service you guys are unbelievable <laughs> so you know there are ways to go solve problems uh, without, you know, shutting down everything. I used to tell people, they'd say, we can't ship this. I said, you know, if you ship, if you can't meet a delivery date, it's DOA. And and we've got to, we can't just say, oh, we've got to have 100% uh, perfect product. They they need the product. They want the product. And if it can get them, get the ball moving forward, and then we're all over it on a service perspective, that's better than being 
absolutely perfect. Now, you don't want to do that to the FAA or something, but uh, a lot of people, you know, are used to their, they were, a lot of them were used to rebooting DOS or getting the toothpick out and pushing it in the back of their computer to restart. And you kind of touched on this. Um, she describes the founders being on the floor at quarter end to help with, to your point, getting the computers out shipping. Um, it, it, in more recent years, Scott, this reminds me of Elon doing kind of like his big quarter end pushes for cars that, you know, you might hear about or, you know, to say they make their quarter. I think it's powerful to think about people like you being on the floor with the various teams on the manufacturing side. Um, was that a big cultural thing to your point early on versus later in, in your company's life cycle? You know, the, the, the statement is we all have roles and responsibilities, but the, the ultimate responsibility, we gave out a lot of stock options and, you know, we, we diluted the company regularly to, uh, which is why I'm not one of the trillionaire oligarchs on the planet today. I think I shared too much of the company to too many people, and I'm happy to do that because my life is just fine. Uh, we just had that. We, I, wanted, I spent a lot of hours at work. I wanted everybody to be on the same page and have the same goal sets, and so we wanted everybody to, to be shareholders. And, you know, when you're that way, it's not a job. It's, it's a mission, and if the mission needs something, you go do it. And so, yeah, if it was student body left, everybody showed up on the shipping dock. If it was, you know, uh, everybody, you know, help out with, uh, you know, setting up the new warehouse or whatever, everybody would come out and do that. And then we'd, you know, have, get a keg of beer and, and uh, have a drink and everybody head, head home. So uh, on that keg of beer, she mentions that on, you guys would have kind of Friday afternoon beer busts. Um, Until the lawyers uh, got involved. Yeah. So, so in those beer busts, when you stood up to give a talk, what, what, what were you communicating to your colleagues? So what I do is I go around to each of my VPs and I say, tell us what's your, you know, your, the good, the bad, and the ugly of the last week. What's, what's really been good? What's there, whatever? What are we working on? Uh, what should I know? What should I brag about? Who should I call out as a superstar or whatever? And I go around with it to every group and they would, then I'd stand on the beer keg and I'd say, hey, you know, thanks to so-and-so. Hey, good job on the marketing department for launching this. What a, what a great new uh, product release, blah, blah, blah. And, and everybody would cheer and I cracked chokes. And it, it was just uh, an absolute. It was, unfortunately, if you've seen uh, Dropout, it was sort of the stuff that Elizabeth Holmes used to do at Theranos. But... I wasn't lying. I was only telling what, you know, the VPs said. I wasn't, <laughs> I mean, it, it actually worked. <laughs> so can you teach our podcast listeners about what, when you and, and Vinod uh, did, what you guys did to win the computer vision deal? Because she points out in the book that, that the deal was kind of lost and you guys brought it from the grave. We were a CAD workstation company. There were about four major CAD workstation software companies, Autotroll, Computer Vision, Mentor Graphics. I can't remember the other one. And it turned out that Computer Vision was the big gorilla. They had about 40% market share. And Apollo, our Boston nemesis who had gotten started in all proprietary, had won the other three already. So if they had won this, they would have had 95% of the market and we're done. We're out of business. I mean, it's game, set, match. And uh, so we were competing, just doing everything we can from the West Coast. 
to win the Boston-based computer vision right next to Apollo. Apollo's down the street. Now, that's a disadvantage. Three-hour time zone, six-hour flight, total different cultures, all the rest of it, you know, and computer vision people that were working at Apollo and vice versa. And we thought we had a pretty good bid out there, but uh, we got up uh, about three o'clock in the afternoon. Vinod, who's a, a very dark-skinned Indian guy, he was talking on the phone, and I looked at him. He went pale. Uh, this isn't—I've never seen him this pale. He hung up the phone, and I said, well, "What happened?" He said, "That was Computer Vision purchasing." They said, uh, "We're here to tell you that we're going in a different direction, and we're formally breaking off all communications with your company going forward. Thank you. Do not call us. Click." <laughs> Not one of those uh, phone calls you want to hear because it was basically, all right, it, 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 it's over. So we looked at each other, and I'll give Vinod a ton of gumption and credit for this. He said, let's just, I'm going to fly over there and see them. And I said, well, you got to have something in hand. He goes, all right, well, let's just write up a proposal. So we, we got the founders all together, and we wrote up a proposal, invented a new workstation, just wrote up the specs, said what new chips we're going to put in it, put a price on it that was, you know, like below our gross margin. Uh, we gave them manufacturing rights. We put all of our IP in escrow for them. We put this unbelievable, like, 10-page proposal. We had to get it done in, like, two and a half hours before the FedEx truck left uh, the, sure. the FedEx stop. We got it to them. Vinod and uh, a, an engineer got on an airplane and took the red eye to Boston. So we sent this FedEx package overnight to about eight or nine people at Computer Vision. Vinod shows up in the lobby. Nobody will come see him. Nobody will talk to him. They're just sitting there. They're all walking by. Nobody. Finally, just before lunch, somebody said, listen, you got to get out of here. Uh, it's an interesting proposal. We've got it. We get it. We're not going to talk to you. Get out of here. You just can't be here. Just, you know, we'll see what happens. So uh, the next Tuesday or Wednesday or something, we get a phone call. And it's, hey, get to Chicago. Bring your lawyer. Bring your contract lawyer. Bring a, a computer and a printer and bring a pen. And if and, and we want to meet you at O'Hare Airport on Saturday. And if we hear one word about this, the deal's off. <laughs> Are you kidding wow. me? So we flew out to Chicago, negotiated the deal, signed it, and announced it that next Monday. And, uh, you know, that's really, uh, that just shook the world. And, uh, uh, you know, Apollo just got arrogant and started to negotiate too tough with them. And, you know, we've always said from that point on, the deal's never lost. It's only postponed. Sure. So I always think about seasons in business. And as I'm reading, you know, the various seasons of sun that you kind of touched it earlier, um, I think the most interesting season for you personally uh, was, you know, you were, you were the cultural leader of the firm, and that kind of became evident in her writing. In due time, you became CEO on an interim basis. It, it, uh, it, it wasn't without its issues, though. Um, Eastman Kodak was looking at buying a 7% stake in your company for $20 million. Um, you know, it's like you're the brand new interim CEO. The board doesn't even know how that's all going to lay out. Um, I assume that was real money for Sun to get that kind of, you know, uh, capital backing and that credibility. Um, she paints a picture that outside candidates were wanted way too much money, and she gives some examples of that in her book. Uh, yet at the same time, you're, you're good friends with Vinod, who's leaving that CEO job. 
what was that season like for you personally to deal with all those variables that were coming at you or you were having to you know meet at that time I'm glad I was single at the time. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the girl I had moved out there to be with uh, just basically, uh, she got excited by some other guy and, and left. Um, and so I was just, I loved the, loved the work. I took over in February uh, when they let Vinod and the president go. Vinod stayed on as on the board, but I was CEO and they said, uh, they asked my staff, do you want Scott to be the long-term CEO? And they said, no, eight to nothing. They voted no. And I said, I'm good with that. I, I'm not a CEO. I don't, I don't want to be a CEO. I don't want to work that hard. I don't want to be that responsible. I saw what it did to my dad. And so uh, they said, great, we'll go find one. So we worked that summer. We got the Kodak deal done uh, and just hadn't been signed. And in the fall, we found the new CEO, former HP exec. And uh, I called eight, I called Kodak and said, hey, looking forward to signing the deal. Just so you know, we've good news. We got the new CEO coming in. Here's his name. I gave him the name. And two days later, I got woken up in, in, in my house, and they called me at home at about, it must have been like 5 a.m. because they were all at work. And they said, this is Kodak. We're, uh, we're not going to do the $20 million deal, and we're not going to, we're not going to, OEM your product for Kim's, the Kodak Information Management System, and we're not going to OEM it for Keeps, which was their Kodak electronic uh, publishing system. Mm -hmm. And these were two massive deals. I mean, these made uh, computer vision look small. And then the $20 million was just huge uh, and, a, and a great valuation. And so they hung up, and I, 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 was, I, was, I had to get up and shower. I said, did I, did I just hear that right? Did, did, that, did this just happen to me? I was, it was like the Vinod phone call. And I, I called him back and I said, what's going on? What, what, can we talk about this? And they go, we don't like the guy you're bringing in. We know him from HP. We're not going to work with a company where he's the CEO. I said, well, can we talk mm -hmm. about this? So they sent out Dick Kleinhens, a little short Mr. Magoo. I just loved the man, just the greatest operations guy. Every third word was a cuss word. He was the nicest guy, the most compassionate guy, just totally to the point all all business no no screwing around and he did an interview of everybody there this was in the fall you know late fall early early winter uh of that year like november or something if i remember correctly and he came back and he sat me down and he said listen i just asked your staff all 11 of them if they wanted you or this new hp guy they voted 11 to nothing they want you uh and they said and he said he said, I think you're being a wimp. I don't think you're being tough enough. You gotta take control. You gotta kick some butt. You gotta just you gotta step up. You're gonna do you want this job? And I said, Well, I don't know. He says, Well, you think about it, because I'm gonna go in and tell the board that Kodak's out of here unless you're the CEO and that we have five year veto vote on any new CEO, and then we'll do the deal. We'll do the investment and we'll do the So the board thought about that for about three nanoseconds and they called me in and they said, We'd like you to stay on as CEO. And I said, can I sleep on it tonight? And they said, yes. I went out with my mom. I said, mom, what do I do? I don't want to do this. I, I, you know, you saw what happened to dad and all the rest of it. It's hard work being CEO. And she says, I just do it for a year or two. And, and then you can go find a new one. And so I went in the next day and Kodak did the deal. And, you know, that, that again launched us. And, and those numbers you see that got us to a billion dollar uh, a year run rate were in large parts. Well, and almost entirely because of the momentum we got with the, uh, computer vision and uh, Kodak deals. 
Obviously, Vinod went on to Kleiner Perkins. Um, and something else that Southwick— And he got way richer than I did, so you know, he, <laughs> he, he, was, he was way smarter than me. So she explains in her book, one of the new markets that you found early on uh, on kind of the information sharing was Wall Street because obviously there's just tons of information. Um, she points out that typically they had one computer with eight or ten monitors on it for many people to draw this information— um, you were selling them the idea of networking with your machines and getting the data on each workstation instead. I, is this correct how she explains it? And, and was this just as an ideal customer because these are large margin businesses you're selling into? Well, instead of having tickers and all the rest of it, we gave them big screens and they could put up multiple windows. They could uh, follow the stocks that they wanted. And it became sort of their own little stock exchange. Each one of them had a custom stock exchange and a dedicated microprocessor. Uh, so... It turns out the CAD market was nice, but Wall Street was killer. It, 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 the speed, uh, the the visual, the bit, you know, the high resolution bitmap displays, all of that just made it. Uh, if you could get a, a a millisecond advantage on somebody on a trade, and then do program trading, you could make millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars using a more powerful workstation and set of servers on the back end. As Michael Bloomberg has made a career teaching us, right? Um, so let's see. So Sun's motto became the network is the computer. That was our sales slogan. Our motto is kick butt, have fun. But yeah, the network is the computer basically was to argue that, you know, it, it, the, the smallest computer in the world is the one that's just in your hand. Uh, but if you network it with file system, TCP, IP, uh, and and uh, distributed computing technologies that we kept adding on, and eventually the, the browser and uh, Java virtual machines and all the rest of it really enhanced the, the distributed computing model. So Leonard Busack and Sandy Lerner were working on routers with uh, your oh, guys' machines. You have machines. to bring this up, don't you? Yeah, yeah I, I have to. I'm a good student, right? Um, Sun didn't seize on this idea. Bechtelsheim, in fact, licensed the hardware. And, and again, this is all coming from Karen's writing. So I, that's why I want to bring it up and, and try and uh, see if this is all correct. This eventually created Cisco. So here's my question. And, and I don't have the answer to this, Scott. You, only you do. Do you look at this as just a timing issue? In other words, it just wasn't the right season to go after something like that. Or what, was it just that, that you never saw that as the direction for Sun? Well, we believe there was a difference between the network layer and the you know distributed computing layer. Uh, at least I think that's what was going on. We were growing so fast, it was just hard to keep our, our nose above water. And you know that's what happens. I, if, I, I just wish Andy and Bill had come in and said, here's, here's a router. <laughs> we're going to put that on the price list. And we, I, I wouldn't have said no. I, I mean, I, I didn't say no to anything Andy wanted to do. Uh, I didn't, I didn't know what, I didn't know what a router was. I didn't know what a, a switch did all the rest of it. I was, I was just focused on, you know, keeping the team focused on the goals and building what Andy and Bill designed and shipping it and supporting it and marketing it and financing it and making sure we closed the books. And one of the things I was proud of is, you know, we, we went 30 years without any scandals, without any, uh, financial or, uh, I mean, the, I was never worried that the boys would, my boys would pick up the newspaper and read something bad. Daddy did, you know, so I was happy with all that, but you know what? I didn't, I mean, I wish I'd done Amazon back in the early days. I wish I'd done, 
you know, the, we tried to do the AWS stuff, but it was hard in a computer company to do that. Sure. Uh, I wish I had done Google. I wish we had, there's a lot of things we didn't do. And Cisco was one of them. And congrats to Cisco, Amazon, and uh, Google for, you know, building off of our technology. And, and, you know, Twitter's built all on Java. It was built all on Java. Good for them. But, you know, sure. you, you can't be and do everything. Uh, and, you know, I thought, I thought we certainly enabled a lot of oh, what, what came on after that. It, it's just hard. It's just hard to go do all of that and stay on sure. top of everything. Sure. Uh, in 1985, you thwart a buyout attempt by Apple. Um, it's kind of ironic because it's obviously Southwick's book was published in 99. So this is looking at back at Apple from a more negative light versus the one we have today. It just shows you context. Um, the following spring in 86, you go public raising $45 million. You had just launched Sun 3, which used an upgraded Motorola processor. Um, from what her writing was, Sun 3 looked like it was your wheelhouse. In other words, you guys are just absolutely crushing it by then. Again, it looks um, like your framework, back to your open networks. Um, it was winning you the game, the non-proprietary approach to computing, etc. Your margins were twice that of your primary competitor, Apollo, your nemesis that you mentioned earlier. Explain why market share was more important than profitability to you in that hyper growth period. Probably, I, I would love to have a discussion with her as to where she got those perspectives, but nothing was thwarted. We, we talked to a lot of companies mm -hmm. uh, all the time on a regular basis. I talked to every company and said, you know, does it make sense to merge? You know, and they looked at our market cap and said, hey, it doesn't make sense. You're too expensive. Uh, and so nothing was ever thwarted. I remember one time we got very close uh, I think Gil Emilio was the CEO at the time. In fact, I'm seeing him on Monday. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, it was just uh, the bankers got in the way. They they just were obstinate. I don't know what they were thinking, but it, we just said, hey, come on. And by the way, I'm glad I didn't buy it because I'm glad Steve Jobs came back and fixed it. Uh, I, I would have wrecked it. I wouldn't have been able. I, he's, I'm not Steve Jobs, I admit it. I'm pretty good, sure. but I'm not Steve Jobs. And so that all worked out fine. We always uh, targeted growth and profitability. We were responsible that way. Uh, we, uh, we tried not to waste money. We tried, not to, uh, we tried to give a return to our shareholders. Uh, we became a very speculative uh, stock in the marketplace. We were one of the, the big four. What was it? Cisco, uh, Oracle, us, and EMC were kind of the four horsemen. Mm -hmm. And uh, kind of as we went, it was sort of like uh, the Apple, Google, um, Facebook kind of group, uh, sure. Amazon that came along after. So uh, it, it was a fun time. It was a crazy time. It was a hard time because we didn't really have control over our PE, over our market cap, over our stock price. It depended on what the speculators wanted to do to it. Sure. And... You know, the problem with that is we, we do a lot of employee surveys because I wanted to make sure everybody was feeling good about what was going on and I wanted to know what was bugging them so we could fix it. And we did a graph of the stock price and uh, uh, employee satisfaction and laid the two graphs over each other. There was no difference. The correlation was about, you know, 102% uh, correlation uh, between what the stock price did and what employee morale was. So. That made that made managing and leading uh, a little more challenging, being that visible. So after going public in '86, you know, fast forward, you guys are having a lot of strength and the business is going great. 
Um, you suffered your first quarterly loss in, in 89. Um, uh, market share had taken a backseat to financial strength, according to Karen's writing. And I'm not saying that that's what took place. No, took no, place. no. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what happened. It's very simple. We had a record bookings quarter that quarter, mm-hmm. but we uh, were on HP 3000 mini computers, and we were now a billion-dollar company, and we needed to move to a bigger computer, and the only software we could get uh, ran on the IBM mainframe. And we had to switch over to the IBM mainframe. And it was the most painful, complicated, hard to implement, uh, backward moving. We didn't know what else to do. And, you know, it was the last thing we wanted to do was get on a mainframe. But there just wasn't ERP software running on Solaris at the time that we could use. So uh, we basically had all of these orders. We had all this inventory. And we couldn't get the sale, the the work orders, and we couldn't get it through the factory shipped and and build, and so we just had a about a sixty day, almost stop ship, and we lost money. It had nothing to do with market share, momentum, or uh, market acceptance or anything like that. And uh, so it, it all it was gone the next quarter, and we were rocking and rolling. But uh, there was there was. It's like the word thwarting. There was no thwarting going on, and this was not a. This was just a computer hiccup, a mainframe computer hiccup problem. So, in the mid 1990s, she also intimates the tension between the, you know, the autonomous entrepreneurial culture of Sun, and how at times it had to grow up. And I think you intimated the word of bozos earlier. Um, you didn't want to create too many processes to dull the senses. Um, and as someone that runs our own business, I think a lot about this tension of, you know, people and processes and you don't want to kill the human, um, and the fun. Um, what was this for, what was this like for you as, you know, son was maturing? That was an ongoing challenge and, you know, to take a company from, you know, a hundred people and, you know, a million dollar a month run rate or something when I took over to, you know, the, the billions, it was a, a real learning process for me. I'd never been CEO before. Uh, I learned absolutely nothing at business school about doing all of this stuff. Uh, I mean, at least if you're, you know, go to med school, you learn how to be a doctor. They don't teach you that at business school, how, sure. to, how, to, how to do this. Uh, so I, I just leaned a lot on my managers. There's a, there's a magic secret to being a leader of something that is changing so fast. And that is to ask everybody above, below, around you, if you were CEO, what would you do differently than what I'm doing? Tell me. I got to know. And I didn't care if it was the shipping clerk or a, a customer or our accountant or our lawyer or whatever. I would always ask that question. And I did it with every employee I could run into. I did lots of skip levels and lots of lunch. And I would just, because I knew that the CEO is the last person to find out anything. So I would sure. keep asking people and, and I would learn. And, you know, I had some very good VPs of human resources and they taught me how to build processes. So we would have one week a month be meeting week. So you could travel the other three weeks, but you had to be in town because we were going to do our meetings. We, we had a very precise calendar. So we would do strategic planning this week. We would do uh, employee reviews this week. We would do, uh, um, uh, project reviews here, engineering reviews. We, we would do all of these things. In a, I had a very precise decision-making process where I would assign somebody. We'd go around the room, talk about the problem. 
Uh, we'd get everybody's suggestions on what they would do. Uh, we would then send the person out for two weeks to come back and make the decision. Uh, and they would talk to everybody. And I said, the key is it doesn't have to be consensus, but everybody should not be surprised by what you're going to recommend. And you come to see me before you make the recommendation, because I might want to overrule you. But, um, and, and I don't think I overruled it people more than once or twice in my entire career. Uh, I just didn't want anybody to be surprised when we announced at the staff meeting what you have decided. So, but that was our decision-making process. It was very well understood and outlined. Uh, and, and I tried to keep bureaucracy out of it, but to make sure process was there because it becomes very politicized and bureaucratic if people don't know the process by which decisions are made and the timeframes on which they will be made. And getting into a corporate cadence uh, lets everybody plan their work and, uh, and, and, and know what the priorities were. And if you put it on the calendar, it's a priority and it's, it's, uh, it's important as opposed to, I also made everybody do quality and customer satisfaction as the first line item on their uh, meeting agendas, no matter where they were. And if you didn't have anything that affected uh, customer satisfaction and quality, uh, you were a candidate to be outsourced. So sure. it's just, you know, it was, it, I could talk for hours about, you know, what I learned about managing large teams and global multinational and multicultural teams. But uh, that, that would probably bore a lot of people. So let's pivot to the crown jewel um, and talk about Java. Um, where did the original idea for Java come from? All of a sudden I heard through the rumor mill that James Gosling was going to leave the company. And I went, oh, my gosh, how could that possibly be? So I called him in my office. I said, James, what are you, what's up? He goes, you know, I love industrial, you know, B2B sales, but I want to do something in the consumer space, something that could, you know, ship in the hundreds of millions or even billions someday. And so I'm, I'm going to go off and go do something in, a, in the consumer space. And um, I have some ideas. And so I, I'm, I'm out of here. And I said, James, no. Not, you're not leaving. Um, you, you can't leave. I said, no matter what you want to do, where you want to do it, with whom you want to do it, and no matter how much money you need to go do it and how long you need to do it, I will support it. I will fund it. Uh, you tell me what you want to go do, but you're not leaving the company. He goes, what? He goes, I say, I said, go away. Come back in two or three weeks. Show me your plan. Show me what you need. Show me who you need inside or outside the company to hire to go do this, and uh, I'm going to fund it. And he looked at me and goes, really? And I said, yeah. He, I said, you're not leaving. He smiled. He said, okay. So he got up, left, came back, and he said he wanted to, three weeks later, he said he wanted to develop a, a clicker. Uh, you know, because it was back in the days when you'd have 15 clickers on your coffee table to work all your equipment and TVs and mm -hmm. set-top boxes and stuff. And so I said, sure, whatever. If you think that's going to do something, let's let's go do it. He, well, he's he went to work on it and he said, darn, there's no operating systems and languages that will support the volume and the consumer and the network strategy that I want. So he invented his own language. And uh, the marketing folks came up with the word Java to name it. And then uh, we, uh, we were uh, talking to Netscape about, you know, they had a lot of server software that ran on our equipment and uh, uh, app servers and stuff like that. But, uh, uh, Gosling and Mark Andreessen hooked up and said, "Hey, we got this really cool browser. We're gonna the Netscape browser that we're gonna launch, and why don't we put the Java VM in it?" And that was really how the internet 
other than Al Gore, I guess he invented it, but this is sort of what really <laughs> launched it. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the executable web page became, you know, magic and now it's just taken for granted. Let's jump to Gates and let's jump to Microsoft because it, it, you're reading my mind. So you licensed Java to Microsoft. And I'm going to quote your general counsel at the time, Mark, Mike Morris from uh, Karen's book. Uh, he said, quote, I would do it again in a second if I believed Microsoft would not breach it. We went into this agreement with our eyes open. We wrote the agreement as tightly as we could. Were we naive because we thought Microsoft would follow the contract? End quote. You, you needed to do this to follow the, the Sun and Java framework of open systems. To your point, you would always, those were principles to your firm. That's who you're going to be. Um, no question about it. And you expected full faith by Microsoft. So, so what happened? Well, contractually, if you were going to call something Java uh, and you wanted to use our trademark Java, we required you to have all of the Java uh, system calls, all the virtual machine system calls, and only label the Java system calls Java calls. So uh, anything that said Java dot whatever in, in the uh, operating environment would have to have been certified by us as a correct Java call. And only those things that we certified could have Java dot in front of them so that software developers knew when they invoked that particular instruction, they knew it was gonna be in the virtual machine and uh, that it would work. And what Microsoft did was they took some of our, some of our uh, system calls out, our Java class libraries out. And so if you were running, if you developed say on the Sun develop, developer tool, authoring tool, and then you ran it, it would break, it would stop because it would reach out for that system call. And on a, on a Windows machine, they would have pulled those system calls and it would break. And then the other thing that they did is they had their own Java developer tool and they, they labeled some Microsoft system calls Java dot something. And so their developers would use their tool and think that those were Java calls. And then when they tried to run it on the, let's say the IBM VM, it would break because those calls weren't there. So they were calling it Java, but it was a subset of Java that had been, um, if you will, poisoned with some other stuff that wasn't Java. So that broke Wara right once run anywhere. It broke compatibility and it made everybody, and they were hoping it would make everybody just want to use the Microsoft VM since they were the, the dominant desktop environment. We had a legal disagreement with them and uh, we mm -hmm. went to court and we settled for what I think is the largest uh, intellectual property and antitrust. So we, we got a $2.4 billion settlement and uh, they had to use our Java VM from that point forward. Sure. And, and to your point, uh, it's the kind of their Java, their, their poison Java, as you mentioned, would only run on you know, Microsoft systems. It wouldn't run on other systems. Um, their VM could have been ported to other systems, but it wouldn't have been a compatible VM. So um, Southwick says the Justice Department cited in internal Microsoft documents, and this was when they went to go do their antitrust case, uh, their, their objective was to, quote, kill cross-platform Java by growing polluted Java, end quote, as you just mentioned, Scott. Further, she wrote that the government produced email from Bill Gates criticizing IBM for working with Sun on Java, quote, the Java religion coming out of the IBM software group is a problem, end quote, Gates wrote in an October 97 message, which also referred to IBM as, quote, 
rabid Java backers, end quote. You consider yourself a libertarian from what she writes. Um, the insistence of killing others rather than, as you guys did, creating something new, which Java was something new. Um, how do you look at this as an American? How, how do you look at this for society, these kind of practices? Well, you know, there, I'm probably one of the few CEOs that actually wrote a thesis. I wrote a thesis at Harvard on antitrust. I read the Sherman Antitrust Act, and, you know, I've, I've thought about antitrust a lot. There's one wart in capitalism. I'm a raging capitalist, uh, and, but, and that's it's monopoly power. And the question is, how do you remedy monopoly power? Uh, and, you know, part of the, the suit against Microsoft wasn't, about monopoly power, it was about mm -hmm. not honoring uh, the, the trademark contract. and the contract uh, that uh, allowed them to call their stuff Java. So that that's that has nothing to do with market power. That just has to do with the legal system. And fortunately, uh, uh, they got convinced that you know that was not good. they were not going to win in a in a jury court. So they they settled. The antitrust stuff is all about too big to fail or so big that they. Uh, they prevent any new competition from happening. My problem with antitrust is it's considered criminal. Uh, and I don't think that the CEO who wins the dog race so fast that, you know, they jump onto the, the cart with the bunny on it and run around the corner and all the other dogs can't see the bunny anymore and they all stop running and they own it. You don't shoot the dog who who is so smart and so fast to get so far ahead of the other dogs that the race is over you don't shoot that dog you know that's secretary you put them out to pasture or you make you bronze them and put them on the steps of the commerce department and make them be secretary of commerce and so and the last thing you want to do is is punish the shareholders of the most successful company out there so i i think we need a a little bit of a rewack of the Sherman Antitrust uh, enforcement to make it not punitive to the shareholders and not criminal for the CEO who uh, just by sheer power, um, or, or I shouldn't say by sheer power, but by, by sheer speed and effectiveness becomes a dominant power in, in the marketplace. I also think we're very random about uh, what we do when uh, you know, when we had financial crises, we have a whole bunch of banks that are too big to fail. By definition, too big to fail says we ought to break them down so that if any bank does fail, it's not a big deal to our economy. But nobody does anything about that. They just say, oh, they're too big to fail. Let's actually reinforce them as opposed to um, maybe do the baby bell thing like we did with Judge Green and the AT&T environment. But this, that's a whole, that's a whole uh, philosophical conversation that you could you could have a podcast on is what is yeah, monopoly what is monopoly power what's criminal and what's not well and we're going to have peter doran on the, in on the future on his book uh, breaking rockefeller which is an interesting you know way to study that process so let, let me come back to this whole idea because i you're touching it such a i mean our discussion relative to any point of the last 20 years on this whole antitrust issue is so relevant, it's so pertinent. To your point, the question isn't whether there's an issue, the question is how do you solve that issue? That, that's what we're grappling with as a society. So, so Epic Games you know, sued Apple tied to its marketplace practices where they, they effectively they're being beholden to a single marketplace rather than on an open marketplace. 
Um, so, uh, many of the big tech companies, and you touched at this earlier, have completely proprietary systems, right? In other words, it's not the PC revolution and do what you want at independence. It's oligarch in certain respects tied to the systems. Do, do you see this changing in the future, right? Do you see us going from the few companies to many or not? I don't know. You know, like to, who's going to stop? Who's going to stop Google? Who's going to stop um, Amazon? Um, you know, I don't know. And, and do you want to let it happen eventually? Because eventually it'll happen. Maybe I don't know. Uh, but we've never had we've never had companies this big relative to the average company. I don't think uh, it isn't like the economy has grown. It, it, there's been a a lot of market tipping. That's what the network does. And and when you have non-manufacturing companies, the market can tip very, very aggressively and naturally does. So, I mean, like, let's, let's take the Apple store. I mean, if, if, if the, the remedy might be to spin the store out as a separate business, but give the Apple shareholders ownership of it. Sure. But it's, it runs on a separate board, a separate, and anybody can get access to and use the Apple store. And it's no longer called the Apple store. That's a nice remedy because the shareholders aren't hurt. It opens up the market. It, um, you know, it, uh, it doesn't give Apple computer an advantage uh, with ownership of a store. I don't, I'm, I'm making that up and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people could shoot that idea, but those are the kinds of remedies that we need to have, not ones that punish the shareholder. And in fact, the, when AT&T got broken up and if you just held on to your shares of AT&T and each of the ba baby bells, you'd have done way better probably than if they had kept AT&T as a single monopoly. Because monopolies, you know, when you get that kind of monopoly power, they're slow, they lack innovation, uh, they're, they're, they're overpriced, but, you know, they're kind of corrupt and all the rest of it. I mean, just look at every government agency and you'll see what a real monopoly looks like. Let's, uh, let's go, so past her book, the one thing I have to ask you on, and I just, I love this quote. So her book ends in 99. Obviously, that's not where your story ended with Sun. Um, you had to go through the dot-com era and then the fallout from that. So I'm going to read your, what I, I hope is not your most famous quote, but a quote I love from you. And, and um, you, you said at a Bloomberg conference, I think it was in 02, uh, two years ago we were selling at 10 times revenue, speaking about Sun, uh, when we were at $64 a share. At 10 times revenue, to give you a 10-year payback, I have to pay you 100% of revenue for 10 straight years in dividends. That assumes I can get that by my shareholders. That assumes I have zero cost of goods sold, which is very hard for a computer company. That assumes zero expenses, which is really hard with 39,000 employees. That assumes I pay no taxes, which is very hard. And that assumes you pay no taxes on your dividends, which is kind of illegal. <laughs> and that assumes with zero R&D for the next 10 years, I can maintain the current revenue run rate. Now, having done that, would any of you like to buy my stock at $64? Do you realize how ridiculous those basic assumptions are? You don't need any transparency. You don't need any footnotes. What were you thinking? End quote. So, Scott, you lived through the tech bubble. Your quote there talks about, you know, the, the look back of that two years later. Um, I wrote about your quote in a piece uh, this last fall called, I, I titled The McNeely Problem, which was credit to your quote uh, that we just talked about, um, because you were sharing wisdom, in my opinion, for future generations. How do you look at what is going on in markets today and in technology companies today 
and and what your experiences have taught you about that? It, it tells me that there's an enormous amount of speculation. There's an enormous amount of uh, manipulation. There's an enormous amount of, you know, I've always thought that if we really wanted to get the speculators and the inside traders out and all the rest of it, that we ought to have a capital gains uh, uh, schedule, capital gains tax schedule that says, if you hold an asset for less than uh, a year, you pay 95% taxes on it. If you hold it for 10 years or more, you pay 5%, and then you straight line it in between. That eliminates any value to insider information. Well, Wall that, Street would hate that though, Scott. They would, they would of hate course that. They, of course they would, because there would be no reason for them. There's no, there's no hedge funds, there's no, uh, I mean, th this would, and you will never get that out, but it's a very simple solution. And all of a sudden now, uh, you know, I don't need, I don't need to have all of these uh, guidance, all this guidance stuff, all the rest of it. And I also think that we ought to have companies float their own shares on their own website. And all of their data is on their website. All, and, and they, that better be accurate. And they can sell new shares or they can sell old shares in a bid-ask situation. Uh, and, and people are on the hook to find their own analyst to analyze the data on your website. And you can put pictures of every asset you had, how old they are, um, and if they're still in use and where they are, all the rest of it, what you paid for them. And let people do their own depreciation on that thing and, and decide what it's worth instead of all these crazy gap rules and all the rest of it, and, and let analysts really do an, uh, analyze the cash flow uh, opportunities for any particular business. And don't make me uh, pay an accountant to come up with an, a certified number. I just have to, an EPS number. That's not my job. My job, is, I'm incentivized to lie on that thing because I want sure. the stock price to go up so I have a lower cost of capital. It's, 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 the system is really broken, it's really dumb, and, and why do I have to go to a third party to buy or sell my shares? I've got all the data on my website, it's all right there, uh, and you know, eBay did Beanie Babies and I can't do my own shares. Uh, sure. So I, I, you know, but that would, then you could level uh, Manhattan and make it a golf course. <laughs> That's which, and, and by the way, the world would run a lot better in that model because most brokers don't add value because brokering is a liar, liar job. You lie to the seller. You're never going to get a better price than this. And you, you turn around to the, the, the other guy and say, oh, you're never going to get a better price than this. So they're just telling the buyer and the seller lies. And then they take a chunk in, in between. And, you know, program trading and all the rest of it puts all of us who are trying to you know, actually make intelligent investment decisions out to lunch because uh, the speculation and the machines and the algorithms and 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 the uh, oligarchs and the apparatchik are in charge. Well, you remind me of the old joke, uh, you know, that, you know, why did God make stockbrokers? And he, he made them so that, you know, his, his children would pray. Um, so, so, I, so I, I, Scott, we could go on for a long time today just because your, your, A, your story, your leadership, your company, you know, son's history, what it did. To your point, it's, 
it, it didn't profit the most from how many great technologies came out of it. Is there anything that we haven't talked about tied to Sun um, that you think needs to be mentioned? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think we, I don't know. I think we already said it. You know, I just felt good about the character of our team, the fun that we had, the impact that we made, uh, the honesty with which we, we dealt with the customer and our partners. And, you know, the S always stood for share. We allowed lots of people to share in the success of the company. And, and I think if you talk to the 235,000 Exim uh, Sun employees, that you get a, a, a stunningly, uh, almost a near unanimous, hey, that was the best place I ever worked. And that's, that's a huge sense of pride for all of us. And we're all still a team. And uh, I, you know what? There's, if you say to somebody, hey, I used to work at Sun, they'll say, what can I do to help? You're, 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 part, of the, you're part of the family. So that was really, I, I don't know that companies have that kind of culture but anymore. I'm sure there's lots that do and a lot of private companies do. But we were able to keep it as a public company. It was harder and it, it eventually became you know, impossible. But uh, it, it, was, it was a really, really great run. Now, obviously, you're you're you know you haven't been at uh, you know Sun as chairman since back in 2010, as we mentioned earlier. So, um, what I'd love you to do, Scott, is um, teach uh, our listeners uh, what you've been up to since. Um, obviously, your you know your your new venture is Kariki, and I'd love for you to teach them about what you're involved in and and what you're leading now. All right. Well, I, I stepped down from CEO because I, I had boys that were two, four, six, and eight years old. And I was working a bazillion hours, and I didn't want to leave my wife alone with four, you know, wild, wild cowboys at home. So I, I wanted to be with them. I wanted to help raise them. My dad wasn't there. Um, he was at work when I grew up, and I didn't want my boys to um, not know their dad. And so I, I did that, but I didn't want to check out completely. So I, I advised for stock options, and I advised several dozen companies in a very low-key and informal way. And I think most of them are, have been pretty happy with it. Um, and I don't take any cash or title or health care. So it, it's, it's, um, it works out great for my lifestyle. But the other thing that we did is we spun out of Sun uh, Kariki, which is a, was an open-source education uh, materials uh, product. And I, I really think that education is broken. I think uh, government is not the right place for for education to happen. It should be a uh, uh, a a shared private sector uh, initiative, and we spend way too much money for what we get. And what we get is, uh, I think, very biased and uh, dysfunctional in many ways. So I want to give parents choice. I want to give uh, employees choice to to get better. I always talked about skills obsolescence being 20% per year. So if you didn't train yourself for five years, you're 100% skills obsolete. So it ought to be all online, self-paced, gamified, whatever. There was no great authoring tool to go make that happen. PowerPoint's great for presentations, but where is the great tool? Uh, and where is the great uh, API roadmap so that everything works together, common directories, common user interfaces, common uh, data lakes and data oceans, common uh, uh, technical APIs, common everything. And right now, the 
the curriculum world is online curriculum world is the most fragmented thing in the world. Everything is different. Khan doesn't work with uh, uh, Western Governors University. Stanford doesn't work with MIT. This doesn't work with that. And they're all using different um, interfaces and technologies and frameworks and all the rest of it. So we've put all of those frameworks, the, the ones that we think are good and standard and work together into a, a, a reference implementation on GitHub. And we're trying to get the world to tip with, with uh, no barriers to entry and no barriers to exit to a standard platform so that uh, online learning experiences all feel like they came from the same place, but uh, anybody and everybody can contribute to this. So uh, it's, a, it, it's, it's something that uh, curriculum.org, if you go to the website, check it out. I think you'll see some very interesting technology, a lot of ex-Sun people involved. Uh, and we're, we're trying, what Java did for interactive web pages and, and interactive uh, websites, we're trying to do for interactive learning experiences uh, with the uh, Curriculum Studio APIs. So it, it's, it's, it's fun because it's building on what I learned over 30 years at Sun Microsystems, but it's kind of different because it's a .org. So we've got to, ref I, I, the only way I think we can beat a government uh, run education environment and a fragmented environment is to go free and open source. And that sort of requires it to be a .org. And that means I've got to count on good people like Larry Ellison and uh, the Koch Foundation and Chuck Schwab and others who have been donating to go make this happen. I'm a pretty big donor myself. So it, it feels good. Uh, I think we'll be successful. We're, we're, we're growing like crazy with the product. And I think it might be a bigger contribution someday than even Sun Microsystems. Well, that's exciting. And then you're also, uh, you're somewhat active on social media, and I've seen you post occasionally on Twitter. What, what's your Twitter handle for anyone that wants to follow you? At uh, Scott McNeely. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I, like I said earlier, Scott, I mean, you and I could go on and I'm sure we could have a beer and talk about this for another two days. Um, I really appreciate you coming on today uh, to, to go over, you know, your history, your leadership, um, you know, that, that I learned through Karen's book, High Noon. Um, I thank you for joining me today. Um, and for those of you that I mentioned, it's Karen Southwick's book, High Noon, that, that we use as our framework for talking with Scott. Um, this was our in the beginning format. Um, for our listeners, if you have a great book that you'd like to recommend, like High Noon, email podcast at smeetcap.com. That's podcast at smeetcap.com. You can also send any book recommendations into our company's Twitter handle. Um, our handle is at smeetcap. Thank you for joining us with a book for a book with legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at smeadcap.com or by calling your financial advisor.